0: Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. This is a show empowering you with truthful information so you can really make the best choices in your life. Being informed is where it's all at, and being informed with the the knowledge that allows us to really navigate the world of nutrition and health is so critical at this time. And by the way, even though this show is called What Women Must Know, obviously, it's relevant to men as well. So all the men listening, welcome. I hope you'll be joining me every week for these fascinating conversations. If you are listening for the first time or if you haven't yet opted in to get my archive shows, then please either like me over at my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know, or go to my website, which is dr. Cheryl Selman. That's dr. Cheryl Selman.com and opt to my site, and then you will get all of the archive shows that I do on Progressive Radio Network, not only What Women Must Know, but my program, which is every Saturday at 11 a.m., called The Love Code, which is all about the spiritual dimension and the transformational dynamics of who we are in life. So I hope you'll be joining me and listening and learning as I continue to learn and grow from these great conversations. And we have another... Wonderful conversation. Important, actually a profound, I would say, profound conversation today with my guests. We're going to be talking about Super Gut, reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight with Dr. William Davis, and that's the name of his latest book, Super Gut. And um, just let me share a little bit about. Dr. Davis, he is a renowned preventative cardiologist and author of the groundbreaking number one New York Times bestseller, Wheat Belly. He's also written three other New York Times bestsellers and several other books, including Undoctored. Dr. Davis' latest book is Super Gut and his new approach to gut health. This strategy not only gets to the root of many diseases, but also improves levels of oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy, I love oxytocin, <laughs> and brain health, and promotes anti-aging and weight loss. Dr. Davis has connected the dots between um, our health and many common, our gut health, and many common modern ailments and complaints. One in three people have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which we will go into in this conversation, which causes a long list of health issues and illnesses. It is a silent and profound epidemic created by the absence of microbial species that our ancestors had even 50 to 100 years ago, which have been erased by the industrialization of food and medicine. We have a really big story here, an important story for restoring our health, maintaining our health. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. William Davis to What Women Must Know. So, Dr. Davis, hello and welcome. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. You know, uh, as we were chatting before we began our show today, I interviewed many years ago when We Belly came out, and that was such a fascinating conversation. You did such great research to bring that information out into the world and you have been so prolific ever since it's like you get on this you get on this train and the tracks just keep taking you along <laughs> right with no end in sight actually yeah, absolutely um, so uh this book which i have read is so fascinating uh, and such a great read super gut So I'm so pleased to have you on the show and that you are sharing this actually profound, profound information, a key to true restoration of health and well-being. So um, we're going to just jump right in, Dr. Davis. And I thought we could just have – how about just a brief um, overview of Uh, the story of our gut and how our gut, what our gut is from the time you put something into our mouth until it leaves us. What is that brief journey?
1: You know, for years, we thought that the intestinal microbiome, that is the microbes that dwell in our gastrointestinal tracts, we thought they were just a nuisance, a curiosity. You throw an antibiotic at it, you know, because you had sinus infection or, were an upper respiratory infection you took an antibiotic and you had diarrhea for a couple of weeks and end of story there was no interest in what was going on in the microbiome well it's become clear that is absolutely wrong and in fact the indiscriminate use of antibiotics has really decimated this thing called the intestinal microbiome and it's shocking how far we've come from a healthy microbiome to where we are today in 2020 because now it. Disrupted microbiome in these many forms underlies so many health conditions. could be a health condition that's in the GI tract, like irritable bowel syndrome or also colitis or gallbladder disease. Or it could be far, seemingly far away from the GI tract, like depression or dementia or Parkinson's disease or rosacea or psoriasis or diabetes or weight gain. But it's become clear the microbiome plays into all those situations.
0: Yeah, who would have thought, you know, um, I'm one of those um, babies that, um, and we can talk about the role of birth because I think birth is, how we're born in a vaginal birth is the beginning of the story. Actually, it's probably not the beginning of the story. I, I gather the beginning of the story is a healthy microbiome in a pregnant woman um but i was just one of those babies that i uh, ha- had a difficult birth and immediately put on the bottle and then i had a whole series of mm. skin issues and poor health and underweight you know you can see the whole pattern right mhm which has taken me a long time to recover from that's right maybe a long still time i'm not totally right. recovered yeah so mm-hmm. let's talk about let's talk about that early journey of how we set ourselves up what what we should what we should be doing in terms of having good, healthy microbiome, but what happens in our culture from, from the time a woman is pregnant or maybe before.
1: That's right. So all the way back into pregnancy, about 25% of the world's population of females has what's called vaginosis or dysbiosis of the, vagin- of the birth canal. That is, they've had a disruption of the microbes that are supposed to live. You know, for many years, we thought that uh, places like the vagina or breast or prostate or uh, gallbladder or pancreas, we thought they were sterile. Well, that's become clear. They are not sterile. In fact, we are just walking microbial factories. Well, young women now have this situation called vaginosis where the microbes in their uh, birth canal are disrupted. There's a proliferation of an unhealthy species called Gardnerella vaginalis and a loss of healthy species. Well, that's important because when a woman has vaginosis, 25% of ladies have this, the likelihood of premature birth goes way up, and premature birth has serious implications. If a child is born before 37 weeks of pregnancy, that child has major issues to confront. They may go on a ventilator. They may have uh, emotional and mental deficits. Uh, some kids die because they get necrotizing enterocolitis. So it's it's a very serious thing for a woman to deliver a child prematurely. So one of the things that she can do, and now all the pieces to fix this have not been sorted out. Uh, conventional uh, treatment is an antibiotic. Well, you know what antibiotics <laughs> cause a lot of these problems in the first place. So an antibiotic is unlikely to be the final solution. And there's a high likelihood of relapse when a woman is treated for vaginosis. Uh, Now, the microbiome solution has not been fully sorted out. Though, by the way, there was a recent study that showed that vitamin D, of all things, dramatically shifted the composition of the vaginal microbiome back towards one that looks a lot more normal. And so there's a growing appreciation that vitamin D, and by the way, omega-3 fatty acids uh, taken during pregnancy and then during lactation, breastfeeding, has dramatic effects, well, obtained during frenzy, dramatic effects on reducing the likelihood of premature birth. And, of course, you're giving your child these nutrients that are essential for normal neurodevelopment.
0: Can I ask a question that um, when you were talking about uh, the risk of early uh, preterm birth because of an impaired microbiome, exactly how does that happen? How how does a compromised or impaired microbiome contribute to an early preterm birth? Do you know? You know, all the pieces have not been worked out.
1: It's clear that young girls have normal vaginal flora, but something happens with the uh, introduction of sexual activity. Somehow they get infected with Gardnerella and lose Lactobacillus species. I mean the, the microbiome of the vaginal of birth canal is very unique. It's very different from any other organ. But one thing that seems to that has been sorted out is when you have this vaginosis, vaginal dysbiosis, the microbes that take over, like Gardnerella, can ascend up into the cervix, and it provokes an inflammatory reaction. And the, if the woman's pregnant, it can cause the cervix to relax, becomes lax, wow. and that can okay. provoke premature labor yeah
0: okay that makes sense to me I, I can see that connection and you know mm-hmm. in doing the work that I've done on women's health and hormones the um, contraceptive pill is just like taking an antibiotic and altering the gut microbiome mm. we've made so many mistakes in health haven't we? I mean as a society
1: stomach acid yeah. blocking drugs, non-sterox anti-inflammatory drugs, statin cholesterol drugs, on and on and on. It's become clear that the pharmaceutical industry is in the business of disrupting the microbiome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it, I would say that the that a disrupted microbiome is one of those root cause issues for all of the variations on a theme of Diseases that we're experiencing, and not just physical, but also mental and emotional. I I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Absolutely, I think we have to re-examine virtually all modern diseases. You know, put aside Mm -hmm. infection, of course, and injury. So if you have malaria, that's something different. Or if you fall down the stairs, an injury that's different. But the the common chronic diseases we're all familiar with: obesity, type two diabetes, autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative disorders. All these. They all have to be reconsidered in light of these new findings uh, of the microbiome, either as a cause or at least as a means of worsening these conditions.
0: You know, I want us to go into this uh, whole new world of SIBO. But before we do that, I I just want your thoughts. You know, over the last couple of years with this, you know, quote-unquote pandemic, and everyone has been phobic, right, Germ phobic. So they're using all of these antibacterial cleaning products. They're using the hand sanitizers constantly. What are your thoughts on the effect of this, you know, this fear and phobia, on our biome, on our, you know, entire biome?
1: You know, some isolation from people with infections is necessary, of course, but that's one of the dilemmas of a modern world we have billions of people. But the downside, of course, as you're pointing out, is the loss of exchanging microbes with other people. That's where microbes come from. They come from other people, other animals, uh, pets, farm animals, uh, and the environment, soil. So we, we share microbes with the world. And if you try to kill off everything, you, you're going to kind of shoot yourself in the foot of of health. Mm. In fact it's probably a mm. good idea to contact people putting aside the pandemic and viral illnesses. But in general it's good to be share contact with other people. It's good to put your hands in the soil. It's good to walk barefoot. All these kinds of things we do to share microbes.
0: Because we're not just we're not just sterilizing an environment. We're actually creating an environment to let Other, you know, more nasty types of microbes and microorganisms proliferate. It's so out of balance what we're doing. Absolutely. You know, one
1: of my favorite examples is what happens to people when they have gingivitis or periodontitis or just bad oral hygiene. One of the things that happens is there, because you lost healthy microbes in your mouth, you start to allow unhealthy microbes to take their place. One good example is something called Fusobacterium nucleatum. Now, when you have that microbe in large numbers in your mouth you have, because you have gingivitis or bad oral hygiene, that microbe makes it to your colon, where it causes colon cancer. If you take a sample of colon cancer and look for that organism, you're going to see 200-fold higher populations of Fusobacterium. If you take that microbe and put it in a normal mouse's colon, it promptly gets colon cancer. Now, here's another question. They said, well, how did it get from the mouth to the colon? Well, naturally, you think swallowing, right? No, it gets to the colon by, by, through the bloodstream. So every time you chew hmm. or brush your teeth or floss and you haven't been taking good care of your oral health, you seed your colon with Fusobacterium. And that raises risk for colon cancer considerably. So, in other words, that's that's an example of how far-reaching the microbiome can be.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I never knew that. That, I mean, we know that um, if you have gingivitis or periodontal disease, it's increased risk for heart disease. But I never knew it, it could be a risk factor for colon cancer as well. So you can imagine this idea that we do colonoscopies to screen for colon cancer is
1: kind of silly. The real answer would be to pay attention to things that lead to colon. Of course, colonoscopy is not, is not prevention. It's looking for early disease. What if we took steps 5, mm-hmm. 10, 20 years before colon cancer even becomes possible, such as looking at oral health, such as looking at the intestinal microbiome? Because it's also clear that the disruptions of the Colonic microbiome also increased colon cancer. That would be a lot smarter way to prevent colon
0: cancer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Blinding flash of the obvious there, right? Once you can understand and see <laughs> right. this connection. Right. Uh huh. So, um, so in um, oh, I want to just make uh, another comment. I I saw a post the the other day that was a study out of I believe Finland one of the Scandinavian countries where they are um, making sure that school children spend time out in nature digging around in the ground and planting and getting their hands in the soil because they have found a significant increase in the microbiome population the healthy microbiome population of these children and yeah, you know, that was a study that came out, and I I thought that was quite profound. How, again, connecting to the earth and which we are a part of, and uh, allowing yourself to dig your hands into the soil is actually a healthy thing to do, especially now in the relationship to this Isn't conversation that wonderful with our microbiome. Yeah. hmm Over and over yeah. again,
1: we're, we're reminded that. There's a specific – we have needs. We have specific needs all programmed into our genetic code. And if we don't meet those needs, weird things happen. It could be called diabetes. It could be called depression, whatever. But it's it's a reminder that we really need to go back to some of the old ways. You know, if, if we watch the lion eat a gazelle and you don't like it because it's violent, it's bloody, and you make the lion eat only kale and spinach <laughs> – the lion's gonna die because it's got specific needs programmed into its genetic code. The same
0: goes for humans. So let's jump into the um, big revelation that you have written about in Super Gut. Talk. Let's talk about what's what you find as a significant piece of this puzzle that's contributing to poor health in regards to our gut microbiome and the role of the small intestine? Mm.
1: It's become clear from numerous studies now that we have killed off hundreds of bacterial species in the human GI tract. And these were not unimportant. Some of them did some very important, provided some very important functions for human health. So we've lost hundreds hundreds of species, many of which were very important. And in their place, one of the roles of healthy species is they suppress proliferation of unhealthy species, pathogens. So in many people, as you know, I estimate that one in three Americans or over 100 million people have this process of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That is, we lose healthy species in the colon in their place, unhealthy species, mostly stool microbes like E. coli and Pseudomonas and Klebsiella, proliferate, but then they ascend up into the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach. That's very important because the small bowel, the 24 feet of small bowel, so you can imagine trillions of microbes in the 24 feet of small bowel, as well as the four or five feet of the colon, it all adds up to 30 feet of trillions of microbes. Microbes don't last very, they don't live very long. They live maybe hours to days. At most, and so there's huge turnover of trillions of microbes. When they die, some of their breakdown products enter the bloodstream. This is much more uh, uh, of an issue in the small bowel because the small intestine has a thin and fragile single-layer mucus barrier, unlike the colon that has a much thicker, more durable two-layer mucus barrier. So when stool microbes are living in the small bowel, their breakdown products, are better able to enter the bloodstream. that process has finally been validated uh, by a Belgian group in 2007 and then corroborated numerous times by other groups. That's called endotoxemia. But understanding that process now makes it clear how microbes in the GI tract can be experienced as rosacea or psoriasis in the skin or as depression or uh, Alzheimer's dementia in the brain or, as the muscle and joint aches of fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis, or the metabolic distortions of obesity, overweight, type 2 diabetes, and fatty liver, so that 's why I say we 've got to reconsider all common chronic health conditions in light of this um, these new findings
0: so it 's like these um, gut microbiome species um, are traveling into Territories that they've never been in before, that they've been in a sense blocked from populating in, which is up into the small intestine, and then taking residence I mean, all all the way up actually into the stomach. As you said, H. pylori is a bacterial infection coming all the way up because of. How discombobulated we are! Mm -hmm. That they're even allowed. Even how do they even travel upstream to to get into the small intestine? They're not. The body is designed to keep them in the colon. How, How do they penetrate the barriers that have kept them there to travel? You know, upstream, or they never should be.
1: There's probably a variety of mechanisms. Some of these bacteria are motile. That is, they have little uh, uh, tails that they can actually uh, uh, swim upstream in effect. Uh, Another reason would be if you try to suppress stomach acid, whether it's because you have an autoimmune gastritis from consumption of wheat and grains or because you took medications that suppress stomach acid. So, a reduction or loss of stomach acid removes a very important barrier to stool microbes who want to ascend. And so that's why, you know, when you somebody has gallstones and they take the stones out, if you look at the stones for microbes, you'll find stool microbes in the gallstones. Now, what in the world are stool microbes doing in the gallstones? Sto- gall because the bile duct empties into the duodenum 24 feet above the colon where stool microbes originated. So it's just one reflection of how stool microbes can climb all. You know, 24 feet is about a three-story building. That's a long distance for a microbe to climb. But they managed to do it. And, and by the way, you know, it can happen within days. It, it, you know, a simple thing you can do is go on an all-inclusive vacation in Mexico, have too many margaritas over three days. That alone can do this. That's how quickly it can happen.
0: Wow, that's, you know, pretty phenomenal. And so, so these species um, migrate out of their known and proper territory into, I would say, forbidden territory. They never were designed to ever uh, live and, and habituate. And then they create all of these toxins. So, like, they poop out, in a sense. They're toxins, which then become highly... Um, uh, I guess it causes tremendous inflammation in the system and from exposure, and then they can leach out of the small intestine and get into the bloodstream, and that's how it can affect all the different organ systems of our body and structures of our body?
1: Absolutely. So it can cause inflammation, for instance, in virtually any organ from the eyes to the sinuses, the heart, to the coronary arteries, to the uterus, to the prostate. This is why I say we've got to reconsider everything now because this changes everything. You know, if somebody takes, let's say, a drug that interferes with the pain pathways in somebody with fibromyalgia, like maybe the, uh, a biologic that costs you many thousands of dollars per month to block the TNF-alpha, the tumor necrosis factor alpha, a mediator of pain and inflammation, well, all you've done by taking that drug is block a pathway for pain. And inflammation. But what about the cause? So we now know that fibromyalgia is largely a disease of the microbiome. People with fibromyalgia have massively disrupted microbiomes. They virtually all have SIBO, and they have it to a, a severe degree. So the sol- if your solution is the block a pain pathway or inflammation pathway, you've done nothing for the actual cause. And if you have that kind of disruption of the microbiome, uh, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for autoimmune diseases. You're asking for neurodegenerative disorders. You're asking for weight gain, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. You're asking for diverticular disease and colon cancer. So it's very unwise to bury your head in the sand about these issues. Uh, And as you know, a lot of our colleagues have not kept up and are not,
0: they're still prescribing drugs just to block some pathway. Which then further contributes to the whole dysfunction and this overgrowth of the inappropriate bacteria because everything's been put out of whack, so to speak.
1: Exactly. It makes the situation worse in many instances.
0: Yeah. You know, I don't think people realize how many drugs actually are known to have a huge impact in a negative way on our microbiome. Just taking those meds can can alter the microbiome, and there's a long list. I mean, I don't even know all of them, but we certainly know, like I was saying, even the common, not the common, but the popular birth control pill that's been used for generations now. Can you imagine a woman taking, a a grandmother taking the, the pill, and then there's all those generations that have been affected by that altered microbiome?
1: Exactly right. So uh, with each passing generation, the disruption of the microbiome, including loss of species, gets worse and worse. And I think we've kind of arrived at a perfect storm kind of time where it's gotten so bad, you know, because this wasn't as bad in your mom or dad's time, certainly not your grandparents' time. But it's accumulated, it's gotten worse, it snowballs, and now it's gotten really bad. Now, of course, we have epidemics of this SIBO issue, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where 30 feet of microbes are eroding your health.
0: And and what is your definition of SIFO? S I F O, which you write about.
1: You know the definitions are poorly sorted out, depending on whether you make that uh, you identify fungi in, the, in a stool sample whether it's identified in an aspirate during an endoscopy. So there's a lot of debate about what exactly constitutes an abnormal amount of fungi. But it is clear that all the things that lead to SIBO, like antibiotics, chlorinated drinking water, prescription drugs, uh, stress, uh, food additives like food preservatives, you know, they're antibacterial, so they're also antibacterial in you, emulsifying agents, on and on and on. All those things that cause disruption of the bacterial microbiome can also cause disruption of the fungal microbiome that is allowing fungal species like Candida albicans, Candida glabrata, Candida tropicalis, malassezia, to proliferate. The symptoms are very similar. So in SIBO, common symptoms include such things as uh, IBS symptoms like bloating and diarrhea, um, or uh, intolerances to numerous foods. These are the people who say, I can only eat six foods, and everything else gives me panic attacks, diarrhea, and bloating, it's skin rashes, and asthma. Well, th- these are all forms of SIBO. Uh, and by the way, the food intolerances go away once you manage and eradicate the SIBO. But the symptoms from C. F. O. from fungal overgrowth, are very similar. SIBO the the is more likely to be associated with skin rashes, like eczema, and also, oddly, uh, sugar cravings, which is kind of an odd thing when you think about it, because for fungi to cause sugar cravings, because fungi thrive on sugar, you've got to wonder, what are the fungi doing? What mediator are they producing that makes your brain say, feed me, <laughs> feed me more sugar? So that's, I think, we, no one's identified the mediator, but I think it's a great example of how the microbes in your GI tract influence your internal dialogue and your behavior.
0: Absolutely. I always ask patients if they have sugar cravings, and then we look for things like Candida, right? Something's going on that is generating Mm -hmm. that's controlling the human to eat more food of that that species. (laughs) Uh You know, fungal species. They're very powerful, aren't they? Very powerful. Absolutely. In fact, you know, so much of our
1: internal dialogue is is colored by the microbes, both fungal and bacterial. You know, we see this, of course, when we try to kill off these microbes, whether it's fungi or some bacteria. And, of course, people experience this die-off reaction, uh, experiencing such things as diarrhea, but also panic attacks. Uh, racing heart, sometimes low-grade fever, but it's a vivid illustration of the power of microbes. So microbes can determine whether you have a message, an internal dialogue of love and empathy and optimism, or an internal dialogue of hate
0: and criticism.
1: I think it's th- it's that powerful.
0: Well, And the other powerful thing that I've learned recently is the um, role of sunlight on the uh, exposure to sunlight on your on your body, particularly around your, your, you know your whole abdomen, actually has an influence on your microbiome as well. Did, have you come across that information? No, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean the skin has receptor sites to light, and that it, um, the work of Dr. Jack Cruz talks a lot about how sunlight is actually altering your gut microbiome, or you know enhancing it in a positive way. So, just getting exposure to sunlight plays a major role on your microbiome amongst many other things
1: you know once again, going back to the way things should have been all along, being outdoors, eating organ meats, you know not eating food in a cellophane wrapper or drive through window
0: mm-hmm. yep it's uh blinding flash of the obvious isn't it when you start to open your eyes to see what we have done Uh that's taken us so far from nature so far from nature which we are uh, you know uh, an absolute integrated and integral part of we are nature we we cannot separate ourselves and be healthy Mm so absolutely um, So a lot of what your work involves, Dr. Davis, is restoring these environments, restoring a healthy microbiome, restoring a healthy environment throughout our body, not only in our intestinal tract. So let's let's talk about some of the uh, solutions that you are writing about in your book and you help people, guide them to do a program so they can really restore their health by restoring this healthy microbiome. Throughout, their, throughout throughout their body
1: so it's become clear we've lost hundreds of species now we can't restore all of them but there are some very important ones that you can restore and you can kind of pick and choose the microbes you want to restore depending on the effect you want so I tell people it's like going to a restaurant when the when you walk in the restaurant the waitress hands you a menu you don't freak out and say I can't order all these appetizers main courses and Desserts, you pick the ones you want. Well, you can do the same kind of thing with the microbiome. If you say, for instance, I want smoother skin, deeper sleep, uh, accelerated healing, and an increased libido, well, let's ferment lactobacillus roideri. If you say, I'd like to shrink my waist more than I've achieved with diet, let's ferment some lactobacillus gasseri. If you want to reduce arthritis pain in your knee or hip, let's ferment some bacillus coagulants. If you have a baby and you want this baby to sleep through the night, uh, have fewer bowel movements, half as many, have as many diaper changes, have less colic, less fussiness, and as an older child, less asthma, less autoimmune diseases, less likely to become uh, – have irritable bowel syndrome, less likely to become obese, and have a higher IQ, <laughs> well, let's ferment Bifidobacter infantis. So people are uh, capable of achieving extraordinary outcomes with these microbes.
0: So how do we do that? <laughs> Obviously the next <laughs> question. What do we have to do? Do we go out and buy these? Do we buy these certain probiotics off the shelf? Do we, you know, make them ourselves? Do we do our own uh, fermented formulas? What, Or is it all the above? Yeah, there's a number of ways to do this. I
1: think the easiest thing to do is, as I mentioned before we came on on the air, was talk about my favorite microbe of all, which is lactobacillus roteri, uh, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German microbiologist who discovered it in 1962 in human breast milk. So he he found it easy to find this microbe in the 1960s. Over his 40-year career, he found it increasingly difficult to find it because more and more people were losing it, and now almost all of us have lost this, this microbe, black bacillus roteride. When you restore it, it takes up residence in the entire GI tract, interestingly, and then sends a signal to your brain, to the hypothalamus, to release the hormone oxytocin that you're familiar with, the hormone of love and empathy. So when you restore this microbe, people say things like, I like my family better. They don't annoy me. as I like my coworkers better. My favorite is... I understand other people's points of view better, even if I disagree. So you get that. The ladies love it because the boost in oxytocin you get from Ruteride causes an increase in dermal collagen, a significant increase in dermal collagen, and they start to lose their wrinkles within about eight weeks or so. And your skin becomes more moist also. Uh, I'm a chronic insomniac. I've always struggled to sleep. Now I sleep nine hours straight through Vivid Dreams, rarely ever wake up in the middle of the night it increases libido it increases the erotic content of your dreams it restores youthful muscle and strength in ladies it preserves bone density so smoother skin more muscle and strength preserve bone density deeper sleep I don't think it's a stretch to say that we're turning the clock back 10 or 20 years with that one microbe now getting it one of the things that I remind everybody, when, and this is not so true with rotari, but it's true with other species, that is when you play with microbes, you have to be aware of strain. The easiest way to illustrate that is so your listeners have E. coli in their guts. I have E. coli. You've got E. coli. We all have E. coli. What if we ate lettuce contaminated by cow manure with E. coli? Well, you can die of that E. coli. Same species. E. coli, different strain. So we got to pay attention to strain. In in fact, people will see when they buy commercial probiotic, strains often not even mentioned, which is a major problem, a major oversight. (laughs) But I originally did this with two strains from a company called BioGaia, and the product is called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. Now, I'm not convinced that's the only strain that does this, so it's kind of an exception here. I've made yogurt with that strain. Uh, but I've also made yogurt with seven other strains, and I think the effects apply to, so far, all strains of Rotorite. So I'm not so sure that people have to find that original gastrous product. But if they, if you want to know, you know, if your listeners want to know which one we know works, it's the, the strains that come from the gastrous product, G-A-S-T-R-U-S, and the company is called BioGaia, B-I-O-G-A-I-A. The funny thing about that, and this what got me making yogurt out of it. Because they sell it to us as tablets with very low numbers of bacteria, 100 million per tablet, which sounds like a lot, but of course in bacteria that's almost nothing. So I crush the tablets, we make yogurt out of it as a way to increase bacterial numbers, and when we we use prolonged long fermentation to allow the microbes to to proliferate, and when we do that, and I perform something called flow cytometry on the yogurt, we got about 250 billion bacteria mm-hmm. per half-cup serving. So we're increasing the number of bacteria by about a thousandfold. Mm-hmm. We consume a half cup oh. per day. It's delicious, by the way, with blueberries and spurt of stevia or something like that. And you get all these incredible effects from this one microbe.
0: Well, you know, as you were talking about the um, production of oxytocin from these healthy strains... My thought was if, if up to 100, we'll just take Americans, and I don't know what's going on with the rest of the world, but if you have 100 million Americans that are dealing with some level of dysbiosis, uh, could this be contributing to all of the uh, frustration and anger and hate and all these negative emotions that we've seen proliferating in people going on in our society? It, we can only it's speculate. Stretch.
1: I have yeah. some studies where we're going to look at that. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I speculate you're absolutely right that the loss of rotari, and perhaps, by the way, other microbes, has really eroded the social fabric. Because I see the opposite happen when people restore rotari specifically. They say things like, you know, I like other people better, I, yeah. th- I, I really crave the company of other people. I introduce myself to strangers in line for coffee at Starbucks, and as I mentioned before, I understand other people's points of view better, even if I disagree. So I think this is a a really exciting way to, I think, turn back, you know, let's face it, humans have always been a vicious, self-serving, violent species, so it's not as if all problems go away with restoration of rotary. but I think Some of the phenomena like anxiety in teenagers and in children, things that we didn't see before, I think those are almost certain to be part of the Rotorai
0: story. So is it – can we get it through a supplement or do you recommend we just create our own yogurt or kefir?
1: You know, because probiotics – Probiotics are probably among the least important things you can do because most commercial probiotics are just haphazard collections of microbes without any thought or rhyme or reason to them. And so that's why I've gone towards this idea of getting specific microbes. But they're often sold to us in such low numbers that they don't really do very much. And that was my motivation for making the yogurt. So bacteria don't have sexual reproduction, of course. They they just double. So-called asexual reproduction: one microbe becomes two, two becomes four, etc. Well, in commercial yogurt making and other fermentation uh, foods, they typically allow four hours. Well, rotari doubles every three hours at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can imagine if you ferment a yogurt commercially for four hours, you've got nothing. So we ferment for 36 hours. That's how we get those billions. Mm-hmm hundreds of billions of counts of microbes. So what we're doing with fermentation, it could be yogurt. It doesn't have to be dairy. It could be coconut milk. It could even be juices. It could be hummus, uh, uh, salsa. i fermented all kinds of things. I will say that dairy is the most forgiving, uh, and you, get the, you tend to get higher numbers with dairy. But It doesn't have to be dairy. But you get higher numbers of bacteria, and you get bigger biological effects. So if you took the baby tablets, you won't get the um, increased libido suppression of appetite, deeper sleep. You'll get almost nothing as an adult. But when we increase the numbers of microbes, we start to get these really big effects.
0: So it's best to get a strain of ruteri from a company. We like this, BioGaia. Get a strain and then follow the instructions in your book, and as you've been explaining to us today, how to proliferate them so you get the billions and then be able to take them on a daily basis. Is that your preferred mm-hmm. way to, to get that back exactly. to restore them? Now, I've made the yogurt,
1: rotary yogurt, with seven other strains, and I think it's not unique to the BioGaia strain, but that has to be proven yet. I have a mouse trial about to go in a few weeks. And we're going to start by comparing five strains of rotari to see if one is better than another. Because if it is, then I'll let you know, and we'll use that strain instead. I, oddly, I called the executives at BioGuy to tell them about all this stuff because they didn't know about any of this. They just think, uh, think rotari is useful in infants to reduce colic and regurgitation of breast milk or formula. So when I told them, hey, we're seeing smoother skin, deeper sleep, restoration of muscle, uh, a restoration of, of social behavior, they were like, oh, ho, ho we don't care about that. I, I was shocked. I was absolutely floored by that kind of indifference because it was so far out of their world of baby's health. So I prefer to get away from that company because they're not supportive. And, uh, right. and my gut sense here is that we can achieve the same or better with other strains of Rotary, but we will prove that.
0: Okay. So right now you're in that process. Of finding other sources to make the yogurt with to uh, create your own. Yeah, rich the only thing body, I tell you know, people. Yeah,
1: Go ahead. one of the other um, one of the other aspects of rotari that makes it so interesting is that it also it colonized the upper GI tract, where it takes up residence and produces what are called bacteriocins. These are natural antibiotics effective against the species of SIBO. So I speculate that the epidemic of SIBO, 100 million Americans, may be at least in part due to the loss of RotaRi. Most people have lost this microbe. So when you restore it, it's part of the solution. And In fact, one of the things I've been doing, you know, when you have SIBO, you have some choices to make. You can take an antibiotic, which I find kind of offensive because if antibiotics got us here, you know, why would you take another antibiotic? Yeah. But, right. you know, so one of the things I asked was, If you've got SIBO, and thereby 30 feet, trillions of microbes, causing all kinds of health problems, if you took a commercial probiotic, would the SIBO go away? No. You might reduce bloating or diarrhea a little bit, but you still have the SIBO. And so I asked, what if we chose microbes, like roteri, that take up residence in the small small bowel, that's where SIBO occurs, and produce these bacteriocins, natural antibiotics, Effective Mm -hmm. against species of SIBO. So I chose Mm Lactobacillus gasseri, a strain of gasseri, colonized upper GI tract, produced up to seven bacteriocins. Ruteri, of course, likewise colonized upper GI tract, produces up to four bacteriocins. By the way, my microbiologist friends tell me that they sometimes clean their fermentation vats with Lactobacillus ruteri. That's how potent it is against pathogens. Uh And then I added also bacillus coagulans. We ferment all three at the same time for 36 hours to get hundreds of billions. And so far, this is very preliminary, about 30 people have done this and have eradicated their SIBO. Ninety percent of them has. And by the way, we're tracking SIBO by use of a device called the Air device, A-I-R-E, that measures hydrogen gas production uh, in the GI tract. It's, a, it's such a mapping device to tell you where microbes are. In the in the GI tract. Well, so far, ninety percent of thirty people have normalized their H2 breath test. So we will look at that more formally in a
0: clinical trial, but right now this is just anecdote. But so far, it seems to be holding up. That's very exciting to know that we can actually have this profound restoration of our environment again, it's like resurrecting, <laughs> resurrecting us, right? Um, a- absolutely. Uh, I I think the whole tr- well, so what about fermented foods? Because, you know, cultured foods, fermented foods, are, are they effective as well? I know you write about them in your book. Do you like them equally?
1: They're probably extremely important.
0: You know, we have
1: a very helpful study from the Sonnenbergs, uh, husband-wife team, Erica and Justin, at Stanford. And about six months ago, they published a very important paper that showed that frequent consumption of fermented foods had a major molding effect on the microbiome on the, the microbiome uh, composition of your of your gut in other words you eat kimchi and kefir and yogurt and sauerkraut and fermented veggies and fermented meats and even though the species of fermented foods like Leuconostoc mesenteroides or pediococcus pentosaceus Very helpful microbes. But they themselves don't take up residence. They somehow open the door for numerous other healthy species to be restored. It's not quite clear how that happens. They speculate that maybe they were latent or maybe you're more receptive now to environmental inputs of microbes. But something happens, and there's a marked increase in the diversity of species in the microbiome just by consuming fermented foods, just like your
0: great-grandma did. I was going to say it's in all um, traditional cultures. Some sort of fermented food has been a part of the diet for thousands of years. Yes,
1: absolutely. It's probably at the top of the list of things people can do, and it's it's almost without cost. If you ferment some cucumbers, for instance, you need some brine, salt, of course, non iodized. You have to filter your water, and then the cost of the cucumber, and then let that sit out for several days to weeks. And it ferments from the microbes on the surface of the cucumber. If you're in a hurry, people can buy starting cultures. You can start the fermentation process that way. But one of the great things about fermenting things is you only have to buy the starter microbe once. So if you make, for instance, let's say fermented pickles or fermented cucumbers and you use a starter culture, you can make your future batches from a little bit of the liquid from a prior batch. Likewise, the Rotorai yogurt or Gasserai yogurt. You buy the microbe once, make yogurt or other fermented food, make the next batches with a little bit of a prior batch. So you only have to
0: invest right. in this stuff one time. Right. Right. It just keeps going. It's eternal. Mm-hmm. They're in a mortal life. Um, have you heard y- of yeah. this have you heard of the perfect Pickler device? a little No system? No, what's that? Oh, I came, oh, I came across this uh years ago. Someone is this company's put together a little company called A Perfect Pickler, and they basically give you the setup with a jar and the lid and the, uh, which has a hole in the middle so you can release the gases. And you can just make your own uh, fermented anything of vegetables. And so I would make my own sauerkraut or pickles. And it's just just a a simple device that helps people to get a better product (laughs) made quickly and easily just by adding right. the ingredients and then some water and salt called Perfect Pickler. So I, I would always pick them up and give them as presents for people because it was a practical little tool that made it easy for people to ferment their uh, vegetables. And they had lots what, of what recipes. What a terrific idea. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, that's yeah, great. That's a gift.
1: yeah. You know, another um, so, uh, thing people can do is, of course, they can buy uh, fermented foods at the grocery store. They don't say live cultures or fermented, something like that. But, you know, because of that problem where commercial production, they hasten it. You know, they want to make their product as fast as possible or greater profit. So what I'll do is if I buy sauerkraut or kimchi or other fermented food is I'll let it sit out in the counter for 48 hours, 72 hours, sometimes longer. And that way you increase the microbial counts. So if you buy, for instance, commercial kombucha, let it sit on your counter for at least 48 hours.
0: That way it consumes the sugar or so and you get more microbes out of it. Well that's a great way to enhance the effectiveness, right? You just let it continue to multiply and create those billions. Yeah. yeah. hmm Yeah. So so you have um in your book you you have recipes. You have lots of recipes, and then you have uh, guidance and programs that people can go on. Can, can we talk a little bit about that to so, uh, give people some options of how they can, you know, initiate this process of restoring these essential microbiomes, and you know, uh, vector into our, you know, back, back in. Let's, let's create health again. And, by the way, I wanted to ask you about fecal implants because I know people have had some great success with a fecal implant. So let's just add, that's a quick question. So what are your thoughts about that? And then we'll go into your program.
1: You know, it's an illustration of the power of what's presumptively a normal microbiome that if you have Clostridium difficile, enterocolitis, C. diff, there's a 92% success rate by taking somebody who's presumptively normal Unfortunately, there have been some deaths with that now, and so there's kind of a moratorium on fecal transplants now. But it is a reminder just how powerful, yeah, the microbiome can be. Uh, One of the things I worry about also is whenever the medical system tries to monetize something, that is another way to do a fecal transplant is to get somebody who is presumptively normal, remove all the partially digested food, leave only the microbes, and you can take that orally as a capsule. That has been done and has been shown to be every bit as effective as a direct sequel transplant. But you can't charge the same because it's not a procedure. So there's a bias in healthcare to do things that can, can monetize services. So I'm a little bit leery about that. But I think it is a reminder just how powerful the microbiome is. I think what's going to happen with that is there's probably going to be a much more stringent screening process so that not only don't people have We look for people who don't have HIV of course or hepatitis C or hepatitis B and other things, but probably also screen them for the quality of their microbiome. And only use donors who are have been screened to provide healthy microbes. Uh, rather than imagine if you get a fecal transplant from somebody with SIBO. Well that's not gonna be helpful, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. You'd have to really know the the host. The donor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is tricky. Actually. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's talk about how people can learn more, um, follow through on what you are doing, what you're creating to support people. Let's get into the solutions for people and support for people. So I people sometimes get overwhelmed by all this. So
1: besides drawing a uh, parallel to going to a restaurant with a menu. Another way to look at this is like having a backyard vegetable garden. So if you want to have a vegetable garden in springtime, how do you do that? Well, you, you clear the soil. You choose your plot, clear the soil of, of rocks and sticks and weeds, plant seeds, and then you water and fertilize for the growing season. And then you have a bounty of zucchini and cucumbers, etc. The same kind of principle applies to the intestinal microbiome. We, we prepare the soil, which means remove all the factors that disrupted it in the first place. Minimize antibiotics. Try to get off all the drugs that disrupt the microbiome, hopefully with a doctor who's who works with you. Uh, uh, avoid processed foods with long lists of ingredients that include preservatives, and emulsifying agents, and synthetic sweeteners like aspartame. So that's preparing the soil. Then we plant the seeds. Now, people often think of probiotics as being the most important seed. No, it's the fermented foods that are healthy. There's still a role for probiotics, but they're not the cure-all that many people think they are. And then lastly, we water and fertilize, meaning feed the microbes, which is mostly probiotic fibers and foods like legumes, onions, garlic, shallots, uh, dandelion greens, uh, root vegetables, mushrooms. So, prebiotic fibers, polysaccharides, and polyphenols. These are plant matter. And that keeps your microbes happy.
0: And it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's people really needing to um, research, and it's like learning another language and how we get into this and how we alter our diet, and we can start in little ways. But we need to start moving the goalposts towards, greater health, and understanding, as you've done so well, Dr. Davis, the role of these key microorganisms. You can't get well if you do not have a healthy microbiome that exists in the right place, (laughs) that exists out of the small intestine into the large intestine. So this is a key part of a profound journey to restore health for any health condition a person may be. Dealing with and, uh, physical and emotional and mental, it all goes back to the gut, which is a powerful, powerful thought to have to understand how how important the gut is. So, if people want to learn more, first of all, they need to get your book, which is Super Gut, absolutely essential. So much information, jam packed with knowledge and strategies and recipes and. Um, references to different resources. And then there's your website, drdavisinfinitehealth.com, where they can learn more and be part of the community. Um, anything else? We have about a minute to go. Anything you want to just add to this wonderful conversation we've had?
1: That's pretty complete. Of course, we're on Facebook as well as Instagram. But you're right. The, the main starting place for a lot of this is both the book, Super Good Book, as well as the drdavisinfinitehealth.com, where there's a blog and also a membership website for those who want uh, more intimate interaction. We have a meeting, a Zoom meeting once a week, is me and about 70 to 100 people. And we talk about rotary and fungal overgrowth and the air device and all the things we can do now. Because even though it's a lot of bad news in here about how much we've disrupted the microbiome, there's also good news in that if given a little bit of benign guidance, people have extraordinary capacity.
0: To regain health. And that is the best note to end this conversation with. Thank you for <laughs> all that you do. Uh, the website is com. The book is super gut. Go get it. It will change your life. Dr. Davis, thank you for your time, for your wisdom, for all the great research you've done. We and are and so thank you for all your hard you. work. <laughs> thank you. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. And to all my listeners, thank you as always. And until next time, always honor the wisdom of your feminine self. Bye for now.